in trying to conquer, but in being conquered. Let us pray. Father, as we come now to your word, I would ask that you would be pleased to apply it to our hearts. Make us faithful hearers. Lord, the one who speaks, make him faithful that his words would be true, consistent with your holy word. Father, do a work of grace in us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 2 as we consider God's Word this morning. The psalmist begins with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Friday's tornado left a path of destruction that is unimaginable. And our hearts and our prayers go out to all who were directly affected by that storm. But indirectly, I would say most, if not all of us, have been affected. I've been reminded of just how powerless I really am in the face of an overwhelming power, the power of nature. And one person summed it up well. It is humbling. As humbling as this experience has been, Friday's tornado was not an expression of absolute power. The question before us today in this psalm is this, do we live in the blessed state, truly humbled before absolute power and the rule of King Jesus, having fled to him for refuge? Or do we live in rebellion and rage in vain? against him, thinking somehow we can conquer him, though in the end our foolishness means we face the fury, we face 
the real power of his wrath. Think about that question. Think about those two options as we work together through Psalm 2. The Palm Sunday crowd observe Jesus riding a royal mount, a donkey from the Mount of Olives coming down the Kidron Valley up into and through the streets of Jerusalem. Mark's gospel records what the crowd proclaimed that day. Very familiar. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Beautiful words that, that held, that proclaimed, that declared the heir of the throne of David had come to establish the kingdom. Their proclamation was correct, but did they grasp the reality of it? The shouts of Hosanna on Palm Sunday, as you may recall in your understanding of the Gospels, quickly faded into shouts of crucify him. Good Friday. What a difference. King Jesus appeared utterly defeated in the eyes of some as he hung there on the cross. And then he died. And his body was taken down and buried in a tomb. One might critically exclaim, absolute power, really? It all seemed a cruel joke. But everything changed on that first Easter Sunday morn. And we'll think about that next week as we come together on Easter Sunday and look at the power of the resurrection changing everything. But the absolute power of God had not died on a cross. In fact, the absolute power of God raised Jesus from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of the Father as the King of kings and the Lord of Lord to rule in absolute power over all. The absolute power and rule of Jesus is declared in our text today, though his name is not mentioned. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The psalmist is considered by some and by most actually to be unknown. We don't know who the author was. Some attributed to David based upon a verse in Acts chapter 4 and verse 25 that Jason read earlier. But irrespective of the author, the theme of this psalm centers on hope the hope that God will fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham to bring blessing to the nations through the worldwide rule of the line of the kingdom. The psalm is messianic in that the specific Davidic king to which this psalm ultimately points is the future Messiah, King Jesus. In this psalm, we find Christ's 
reign will be greater than that of David's and any of the kings that followed after him. Jesus' reign is absolute. It is universal. And it will be a blessing to all those who are subjects of him. In light of the reality of Christ's kingdom, this psalm calls men and women, calls nations, governments, calls all of mankind to submit to his rule and take refuge in him. Psalm 2 has four stanzas, and your sermon outline has four points to follow these four stanzas. This song has four stanzas composed of three verses. In the first stanza, you'll find the word for this stanza is futility. It is futile for the nations or for any individual to rebel against Christ's rule and Christ's kingdom. Futility. Secondly, sovereignty. God will fulfill his promise to establish David's throne. Thirdly, stanza three, promise. The Davidic king, this is actually an occasion for coronation where the actual human Davidic king recalls God's promise when he was coronated that, that his heir will reign forever over a people gathered from the nations. And then the fourth stanza, submission, the only state of blessing and lasting joy is to submit to and take refuge in the Davidic king, Jesus. So let's look at stanza one, futility, the futility of opposing God. History teaches a lot, doesn't it? But it certainly teaches this one thing, that mankind, men and women, tend to seek power. And when they attain it, they tend to be corrupted by it, and then they actually use it abusively. That's the tendency of mankind. Perhaps the most famous statement about the, the corrupting influence of power was from Lord Acton. Lord Acton lived in the 19th century. He was considered to be one of the most learned Englishmen of his time. He was a champion for political liberty. And this is what he said. Likely you've heard this quote. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I have a question. Does power corrupt? If power corrupts anyone, it is because of the corruption that already exists in the human heart. The nations rage not because of the corrupting influence of power, but rather the depraved and spiritually dead heart corrupting their use of power. Psalm 2 begins with the nations raging against and rejecting God's anointed and God's anointed's government. Look at verses 1 through 3, the first stanza. First, who is this 
his anointed in verse 2. That's a term that refers to kings like Saul and David, the human kings. They were the anointed of the Lord. They were set apart as kings to rule Israel on behalf of God. The word Messiah that we're so familiar with comes from the transliteration of the Hebrew word for anointed. And in fact, just to fill out the story a little bit, the title Christ is from the Greek translation of the Hebrew anointed Messiah. Ultimately then, his anointed in verse 2 ultimately points to Jesus. Second, the nations. Verse 1, they refer to those Gentile nations that were vassal states of Israel, that were part of the Davidic kingdom at the time of Psalm 2. And the context of the psalm is that these Gentile nations were rebelling against the king, rebelling against being under the government of Israel. They wanted their freedom. Their rage is understood as uncontrolled anger resulting in great acts of violence. No passivity here. These acts and this rage was premeditated. They plot, they counsel together, and they, they devise the scheme, the text says, to set themselves against God's anointed, to burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, these Gentile nations were trying to free themselves from the government of Israel to have a life without the king of Israel being their king, to have a life without God's government being their government, to be free, to be autonomous, to be set apart. Does that sound familiar? And then thirdly, this rage and rebellion is in vain. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John faced persecution. They spoke boldly about Christ. They preached Christ. They preached his ministry. They preached his death. They preached his resurrection. They preached his, his ascension before the Jewish council. At one point, they even charged the Jewish leaders for crucifying Christ, which, by the way, didn't go over well with the Jewish leaders. They were arrested, and then they were released. And what did they do? They went to some of their friends, and a prayer meeting broke out. In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, you can read about it. And in this prayer meeting, Psalm 2 is quoted, as Jason read earlier today. The ultimate expression of the nations raging in vain is Israel's rejection of Jesus and Rome's complicity in arresting and convicting and crucifying him. And the apostles' prayer shows that the persecution they faced because of Christ is as much in vain as trying to oppose Christ himself. I have a friend that is... Excuse me, <laughs> need a little bit of judgment here, <laughs> and now I've made him mad, so <laughs> excuse me further. 
it is finished. I'm just going to leave him there. <laughs> that reminds me of one of my seminary professors that was up in New England preaching during the summer, all the windows open in the church, and he was preaching a wedding. And he was right at the, the pivotal point, and a bumblebee came and landed <laughs> on the rim of his glasses. Well, this is mine after 30-some years of ministry. So where was I? Rage, Yes. At least I didn't have Felicia coming after me, so. <laughs> that happened one time down here. I've got to get back to the text. You all help me stop laughing. Okay, I'm just kidding. So, so did you get that? The ultimate expression of this rage was what the Jewish leaders, what Israel, what the Roman government did to Jesus. And the apostles said, they're persecuting us because of Jesus, and that is in vain. So, we need to have the perspective of Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Rage against God and his kingdom, in whatever form it may be. The tragic, unthinkable school shooting of last week that took three innocent nine-year-olds and three staff members in our sister PCA church in, in Nashville is an expression of the nations raging. Persecution of God's people in many places in our world today is an expression of the nations raging against God. And we have the hope as was already said and prayed this morning, that as intense and as tragic and as heartbreaking and as unimaginable as the nations raging against God's kingdom and God's people may be, Jesus will never be dethroned. He reigns. Secondly, the reason the raging against God is in vain is because of God's sovereignty. He will fulfill his promises. Look at verses 4 through 6. We, 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 we learn the reason why the nations rage in vain. God had a big laugh over the absurdity of man's rebellion. The nations seek to oppose God and overthrow his king, but it's all in vain because God sits and God seated his king. He will fulfill his promise to establish David's throne forever. First, God sits in heaven. When the nations rage, God is not standing going, what is going on? Fretting about, pacing. He's not having to come up with, with an alternate plan. Oh my goodness, what, that didn't work. i got to do something else. He's not scrambling around. He's sitting. It denotes his sovereignty. He's in control over all. He has a plan, and he's working his plan. 
God sitting on his throne was important in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. And it's important here in Psalm chapter 2. God is never out of control. The prophet Daniel said this about God's sovereignty. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Daniel 2.21. And second, he has seated his king in Zion. He promised his king would sit on David's throne, and he, and he fulfilled that promise ultimately in Jesus. God laughs at the vain attempts of worldly powers to destroy his anointed one. I, I remember when my kids were little, we would wrestle around on the floor, and I would let them have their way for a while. I'd let them pin me, and I'd let them think that they're really inflicting some harm on old dad and then dad would have his way with them and let the fun stop and pin them right to the floor so that analogy falls however because as my children got older they reached a point of development when they actually could pin dad <laughs> and so but god is never like that he looks at the nations like, like they're ants. He has his way. He will have his way. And they cannot stand against him. They, man cannot stand against the absolute power of God and his king seated in Zion. I do not want to make light out of tragedy because... The nations do inflict pain and suffering and horrible things upon God's people and upon our society. But I do believe we need to have the perspective of hearing God laugh at the futility of the nations raging and plotting and scheming and trying to pry Jesus off that cross. It was God's sovereign plan for Christ to go to that cross and, and to raise him from the grave where he ascended to the right hand of the Father as Lord of lords and kings of kings for our redemption. No degree of raging or conspiring by foolish men can thwart God's plan of redemption. I want you to hear this. No amount of raging and conspiring and scheming can pry the redeemed out of Jesus' hands. This is a beautiful truth with regards to our assurance of salvation. It is God's sovereign plan and purpose for His people to be in heaven with Him and share in Christ's reign. And the nations have no say over that, brothers and sisters. What an encouragement that is as the nations rage. Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. 
And now we come to stanza three, the, the, the Davidic king in verses seven through nine begins to speak and, and, and he recalls what God promised at his coronation. That's the context of verses seven through nine. In verse seven, God decrees the anointed one, his king is his begotten son. And 2 Samuel 7, 14 reminds us that the Davidic dynasty, where God, God, in that, God decreed that he will be a father to David and to the line of David, the kings that come after David, promising both an inheritance and power. And verse 7 is, is to see and to understand that this promise is ultimately pointing to David's heir, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's son, not adopted as the king, as David was adopted, but the natural son, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Do you remember God's words in Mark 3.17 at Jesus' baptism? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. On that original Palm Sunday, the crowds witnessed the ruler of Psalm 2, the anointed God, the the idol king, God's own son coming into Jerusalem. And what would be the nature of his reign? Verses 8 through 9 describes Jesus will have dominion. It will be universal. His reign will be eternal, absolute. God made the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. The, the vast of his scope of his sovereignty, all. This is an allusion, I believe, to Psalm 96, which is the Old Testament version of the Great Commission, that God is going to gather a people from the nations. The New Testament, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of the nations. The nature of Christ's reign, this heir of David who will sit on the throne is universal over all. I'm reminded of, of Abraham Kuyper's statement. He lived 1837 to 1920, the great Dutch theologian, scholar, and statesman. When he said this, you've heard this before most likely, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Absolute rule over all. His reign is also characterized by absolute power. Notice the contrast the psalmist makes in verse 9. The ESV uses the word break. That should be understood as rule. He rules with an iron scepter. That denotes strength and power and exercise of authority. Contrast that with the human governments, which the, our, our text tells us are like vessels of clay that are easily smashed and dashed upon a rock destroyed. This is why in Hebrews chapter 12, in verses 22, 22 through 24, that there the writer of Hebrews declares that Christ's kingdom is a kingdom that can never be shaken. Christ will have his way. His rule is absolute and ultimate in both extent and in power. No human power can overthrow King Jesus. He sits and will remain enthroned in heaven. What a glorious confidence we have in the powerful and absolute rule of King Jesus. Now we come to the fourth stanza, submission. The nations are called 
to submit to and take refuge in the king. This psalm really clarifies life. It presents the nations, it presents all mankind, it presents you and me with two options. And those two options are reflected in the question that I asked earlier. Let me remind us. Do we live in the blessed state, truly humbled before the absolute power and rule of King Jesus, having fled to him for refuge, or do we live in rebellion and and rage in vain against him, thinking somehow we can conquer him, though in the end, our foolishness means we face the, the fiery, the fury of his wrath. I believe this psalm clarifies these options, brings this question into relief for us that we might think about it. The psalmist has shown the absolute folly in opposing God and God's anointed one. He calls them to submit to God's rule in verses 10 through 12. The wise response is to, is to set aside rage and rebellion and serve the Lord in fear and rejoice in Him with trembling. That is to have respect and reverence for God's absolute power, His universal domain, His authority. I know I have much more respect for the power of nature after Friday's storm. How much more should we continually seek to have respect for the absolute power of God and God's anointed. The wise response is to submit. The wise response is to kiss the sun, which is an Aramaic concept that we might understand as a subject kissing the ring of a sovereign. That is paying homage to, to the king. The nations are all about disrespecting God. Kiss the sun, pay homage to him. And then our text tells us to, to reject the psalmist's call and warning, to remain belligerent in a state of rage and rebellion against absolute power, absolute dominion, absolute authority, absolute reign, will arouse the full fury of God's anger and wrath, resulting in perishing or eternal death. Those who refuse to submit and take refuge in the king are those who choose according to their corrupt and depraved hearts. They abuse power, not because power is first and foremost abusive, but they abuse power because of the corruption of their heart. And they remain in that depraved state. They remain spiritually dead. And in the end, they get what they want. Those Gentile nations wanted a life out from under Israel. And I believe every individual that rejects the Lord Jesus Christ today gets what he or she ultimately wants. That is a life without Christ. Okay, you get a life without Christ. But brothers and sisters, note what comes with that. Our text tells us they will face the, the anger and wrath of God. If you really want to know what power is, it's not a tornado. 
It's the day of judgment when God pours out his wrath upon all unrighteousness finally. And I would say just as powerful is God glorifying his people. We see the power of God in redemption and in reprobation. Those who refuse to submit to and take refuge in the king are those who choose and get what they want. They don't want the benevolent rule of Jesus. And they get what they want. Now the other option, submit, take refuge in the king and be in a blessed state. The blessed state is best defined. One source said it very well. The blessed state is a state of well-being and relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. That is, responds to his saving work. This psalm ends in, in this last verse with a gospel call. To turn from raging and rebelling against absolute power and turn in repentance and faith to King Jesus and take refuge in him. William Hassett helps us understand the difference between Jesus' use of power and man's use of power. He says, the love of liberty is the love of others. The love of power is the love of ourselves. Here we find the great difference between Jesus' kingdom and that of man. Jesus exercises his power and his love on the, for the benefit of sinners like you and me. He gave his life, though he had all power and authority to take himself off that cross. He stayed there. He submitted to burial. God raised him, the power of God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven all for our redemption. Jesus exercises his power to redeem us and to be our king. And he comes to exercise his powerful reign over us and calls us to come to him and to take refuge in him. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Today, please know that if Christ is your savior, he is your king and he is always your king. The blessed state is living under, living as a subject of King Jesus for the rest of eternity. The great encouragement for us is the understanding of Christ executing the office of a king, our profession of faith today. This is my favorite catechism question. It is so glorious. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in conquering all his and ours in me. That's the blessed state. We can't do much of anything. Blessing is not in our getting our way, getting what we want. True blessing is being conquered by King Jesus. And he promises to do that. His power should humble us to submit to him and find rest in his conquering power over us. For he overpowers the corruption of our hearts and brings us into a new life with a new nature under his gracious rule where he defends us from all his enemies and 
our enemies. He conquers every foe. All that rage is wiped away by the Lord Jesus Christ by just simply a word. We are faced with the question, do we live in the blessed state, truly humbled to submit to the absolute power of King Jesus that enables us to flee to him for refuge? Or do we continue to live in rebellion and rage and vain against him, thinking somehow we can conquer him, though in the end, our foolishness means we face the fiery wrath of God. For those of us who have submitted to and taken refuge in Christ by repentance and faith, what a beautiful encouragement it is that Christ conquers us and reigns over us. And for those who have not submitted to him and taken refuge, would you flee to Christ today? Hear the promise, blessed, that state of well-being is for those who have been radically changed by the power of the gospel and saved into the kingdom of God where Christ reigns supreme. Would you repent of sin and trust Him today? True blessing and joy are not found in trying to conquer, but are only found in being conquered. Let us pray. Father in heaven, would you work powerfully in us today? bringing your grace and your mercy to bear upon our lives. Father, you know each heart in this, this sanctuary today. You know who your children are. I pray that you would encourage and strengthen. And Father, you know those who are here today that do not have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be pleased to do a work of grace in their lives even, even now. Father, cause us to see the blessed state of taking refuge in King Jesus. I pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.